You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host, and with me today is Dr. Howard C. Herman, Professor of Medicine and Director of Interventional Cardiology and the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Herman, welcome. Thank you very much. Talk to us, if you will, about cardiac catheterization and structural heart disease. Surely. The area in the cath lab where we do interventions is really primarily driven by the ones we do for coronary artery disease, the placement of stents and balloon angioplasty. But over the last 10 years or so, there's really been a great development in the ability to treat other cardiac conditions without surgery using cath-based techniques. And they fall really into the category of interventions for structural heart disease, and also included in that as a subset are the interventions for valvular heart disease. And so what I wanted to tell you about was what we've been doing in the area of structural heart disease to start. And structural heart disease really includes primarily holes in the heart and a few diseases. So, for instance, we now have the capability in the cath lab of closing small holes in the upper chambers of the heart between the atria, what are called interatrial communication defects. And these include things like patent foramen ovale, atrial septal defect, and even residual patent ductus arteriosus left over from childhood. We're also able to treat diseases of the heart muscle like hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy using alcohol septal ablation. First of those, the atrial septal defects and related entities are closed with small umbrella devices. They really have different indications for when we close them. The patent foramen ovale is really a leftover structure from birth. The foramen ovale is open when you're in utero to allow blood to bypass the lungs. And as soon as you're born, the PFO closes in order to create two parallel circulations, the right side of the heart that sends blood to the lungs and the left side of the heart that supplies the systemic circulation. When the foramen ovale doesn't close all the way, we call that a patent foramen ovale or PFO, that occurs in as many as one in four or five of the general population. And in the great majority of people, it has no consequence whatsoever. But in some people, it can form a conduit or a way for blood and usually more concerning blood clots to travel from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart and potentially get up to the brain and cause a stroke, what we call a paradoxical embolism. So about 10 or 15 years ago, the first investigational devices became available to close PFOs without open-heart surgery. And now those devices are really in widespread use around the country. And we close on average 50 to 60 PFOs a year now at the University of Pennsylvania, several a week in some weeks. And these are for mostly for young patients who have had a stroke for which no other identifiable cause can be found neurologically what's termed in the neurology world a cryptogenic stroke. And about 80% of the PFOs we close are for that indication. Other indications that are occasionally requiring of PFO closure include patients who have shunting of blood from right to left causing hypoxemia or hypoxia. The classic indication for that being the disease orthodeoxia platypnea syndrome where patients get positional hypoxemia. It's also a cause of the bends in divers And very recently, PFOs have been linked, at least in some patients, to the occurrence of migraine headaches 
And there's now one randomized study called the MIST-2 trial that was finished in England that demonstrated as close to a 50% reduction in the incidence of headaches in some severe migraine sufferers who had their PFOs closed. The device that we utilize primarily for that in the U.S. is the CardioSeal double umbrella or clamshell device. This device has been approved for VSD closures and is therefore available in an off-label fashion. And many of these devices are part of randomized trials that are being performed in order to demonstrate that PFO closure really is or is not better than medical therapy, the alternative being some combination of antiplatelet therapy and or anticoagulant therapy. In any of these studies, is there any direct comparison of cardiac catheterization versus traditional open procedures? No, not, unfortunately not. And there's also, there obviously, since all these devices are still experimental, there are no studies comparing one device to another. So the only trials that are going on right now are comparing device closure to best medical therapy for stroke patients. There is about to start a migraine study, and a couple of different companies are going to be starting migraine studies comparing device closure versus sham closure in reducing the incidence of migraine headaches in patients who have failed medical therapy for their migraines. You're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Howard C. Herman, Professor of Medicine and Director of Interventional Cardiology and the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Herman, what are some of the other structural defects for which cardiac catheterization can be used? The other very similar indication is for atrial septal defects. Atrial septal defects usually come in several varieties, the premum defects, which are at the caudal portion of the intraatrial septum, or classically called endocardial cushion defects, secundum defects, which are in the middle of the septum, and sinus venosus defects, which are at the upper area of the septum. Secundum defects, which are the most common kind, are fairly large holes between the two atria that result in left-to-right shunting and eventually right ventricular volume overload and pulmonary hypertension. Until recently, atrial septal defects could only be closed with open-heart surgery. But now a number of devices, but primarily the Amplatzer device, has really generated great enthusiasm and success for the ability to close even large defects up to 3 and 4 centimeters in diameter utilizing percutaneous techniques that are quite similar to the techniques we use for PFO closure. Dr. Herman, could we discuss mitrovalvular disease? Surely. As I mentioned, for mitral valve disease, if the valve is stenotic, one can use a balloon to spread the commissures and split the commissures, similar to what a surgeon did many years ago. But mitral regurgitation is a much more common problem and has been one that's much harder to attack without surgical techniques. In the last few years, a few companies have developed techniques to allow one to try to treat mitral regurgitation in the catheterization laboratory. These techniques have evolved along several different processes and lines of theory to try to treat this problem. One approach takes advantage of the anatomy of the heart where the coronary sinus travels very close and in continuity with a portion of the posterior mitral annulus. It's a little bit more superior and a little bit away from the annulus, but close enough that several companies have demonstrated the ability to remodel the mitral annulus by placing devices in the coronary sinus through the circulation of the venous system. You are listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, 
And I'm speaking today with Dr. Howard C. Herman, Professor of Medicine and Director of Interventional Cardiology and the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. If you would, Dr. Herman, could you tell us about what the future holds for cardiac catheterization? I think this initial success that has been demonstrated with both coronary sinus approaches and edge-to-edge repair techniques has really stimulated a number of novel and interesting approaches that build on these first early attempts in humans. The future may hold such exciting things as percutaneous mitral valve replacement, other kinds of direct suture annuloplasty techniques, and even tissue-engineered valves that can be implanted either percutaneously or surgically to replace what surgeons are currently doing with open-heart techniques and the first generation of mechanical and biologic valves. And can you tell us about your work at the University of Pennsylvania? We're involved in a number of these innovative therapies. We've participated in several of the early trials with PFO closure, STE closure, and are one of the first sites to perform percutaneous edge-to-edge repair for mitral regurgitation utilizing the mitral clip technique. I think this is a beginning of the field for percutaneous valve repair and replacement, just as angioplasty began the field for coronary interventions more than 20 years ago. The initial attempts with angioplasty weren't perfect, but then we got stents, and after stents, we got drug-eluting stents to the point now where we're really replacing open-heart surgery for many patients who previously would have needed that for their coronary disease. With valvular disease, we're just at the beginning, and I think it may take another 5 to 20 years before we're really performing these procedures as well as surgeons do currently, but in the interim, I think there will be a lot of patients who can benefit from these techniques in order to avoid surgery. So there's no need to close down the fellowships for cardiothoracic surgery at this point? Not in terms of valvular heart disease, no. What about for revascularization of the coronary arteries? I think there will always be a role for surgery in coronary revascularization, but I think the number of patients who can be treated now with our current generation of drug-eluting stents is increasing at the expense of cardiac surgery to a great degree. What has been your experience with regard to the development of intracardiac thrombus or infection with some of these techniques? It's been really very minimal. The great advances in antithrombotic therapy and antiplatelet therapy that have given us so many new drugs to treat platelets and to inhibit thrombin have really allowed us to minimize the occurrence of thrombotic complications. In fact, some devices are even being developed to try to exclude the left atrial appendage or even the left ventricular apex as a way of preventing clots from even forming to begin with and avoiding the need for even those antithrombotic therapies. Would that be another sort of an umbrella or basket device? Yes, the device for the left atrial appendage that's being developed is sort of an inflatable basket covered with a Dacron polyester fabric that can be inserted into the left atrial appendage and then deployed permanently there. The left ventricular apical exclusion device is more of an umbrella-like device that's placed in the left ventricular apex for patients who either have clot there or have a non-functioning apical area to try to minimize the dead space in the left ventricle. And what has been the reaction from patients to these new therapies? Well, patients really want to avoid surgery, sometimes more than they ought to want to avoid surgery, but I think there's a definite bias against being cut, and I think if there are ways to do this in the cath lab, patients really gravitate to it quite quickly. But I should also point out that the surgeons aren't standing still as these new techniques evolve, 
and they're developing a lot of smaller, faster, endoscopic and robotically controlled approaches to treat many of these conditions in a more minimally invasive way as well. Lastly, what has been the relationship between PENS, cardiovascular surgeons, and interventional cardiologists? Has it been collegial or competitive? We've tried to set this up in a way that is not only totally collegial, but allows us to take advantage of each other's expertise. Clearly, we have a lot as cardiologists to learn about valvular heart disease that the surgeons can teach us. And I found that working with the surgeons has allowed our programs to grow for both of us. As we get many patients referred with structural heart disease that I can't treat in the cath lab, those patients become good candidates for referral to surgery. And the opportunity to work together in a collegial way has really benefited both of our programs. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Howard C. Herman, Professor of Medicine and Director of Interventional Cardiology at the University of Pennsylvania. We've been discussing cardiac catheterization and structural heart disease. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.